Um, we are, are obviously been doing a series, an Advent series, and we've been using Handel's Messiah. And, uh, and I don't know if you've enjoyed it, but I've enjoyed it. And, um, and if you haven't enjoyed it, I'm sorry. Uh, you don't get to pick what we teach, and so you're just going to have to <laughs> bear with it, I suppose. Uh, we'll be back in Luke, so you have that going for you. Uh, and so um, we're in the, the, third, the second part of Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is split into three different parts. We did uh, two sermons on the first part, um, and now we'll do one sermon on part two. And you notice that we don't have like a main text. Uh, we have several texts that scriptures that we'll read through and, and teach through. And so um, I am going to start off in John one, uh, chapter one, verse twenty nine. Um, the title of the sermon is just Handel's Messiah, Part Two. Uh, very simple. Um, and we think here at Redeemer, it's important to do a, a series where we're focusing on the incarnation of Christ. Um, and uh, instead of doing one sermon on Christmas Eve, we've done, we'll do four sermons on the incarnation of Christ. Um, and so John 1, 29, let me read that and then um, I will pray for us. John 1, 29. Obviously, John does not have a birth story. We don't have the... the um, the birth of Christ, the narrative that we see in Luke and Matthew in the book of John. We have a different birth story. Um, John 1, 29. The next day he saw, mean John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful again to be in, your, in this house. Lord, we're reminded, Lord, of how good you are how loving you are, how merciful you are. But Lord, you're also with us. You're omnipresent. You're with us. You're blessing us. That's why it's important to, to come and to worship, to come to worship with other believers, because we feel your presence with us, Lord. We feel your blessings. We uh, know it. We believe it. We feel it. We respond in your, knowing your presence is with us and the worship of you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that through Jesus Christ we have access to your throne. Because of Christ's death on the cross, because of his conquering over sin and death, he sits at your right hand mediating to you. And we have access, Lord. Nothing that we've ever done or will done will ever qualify us to be in your presence because we are sinners as as Sean explained, Lord, we are sinners just, we, have, we are broken, but yet because of Christ, we have access, Lord. We have access. We can pray to you, Lord. Lord, we pray for those who aren't with us this morning. We pray for them. We pray for those who are traveling this Christmas. pray that you would watch over them, Lord, keep them safe. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this, this season, if it's stressful, um, overwhelming, Lord, that you would bring peace and comfort and rest to people. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to encourage others, Lord. Lord, that you would give us opportunities to be charitable. Lord, we pray, Lord, that if we're dealing with relational difficulties, Lord, but you, your strength and your power would be with us, that you would give us kind words to speak. You would give us patience. You would give us mercy. You would give us grace. You would give us the love that you showed us through Christ. We pray for that. We need that, Lord. We are unable, Lord, to love one another without Christ. Pray that you would give that to us. 
Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters of Christ across the world. Lord, we pray for them. We pray, Lord, that you would give them strength, that you would give them endurance, that you would give them perseverance. But you teach us, Lord, perseverance through their example. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, for our missionaries on the field, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would provide for them, that you would care for them, Lord, that you would give them strength, that you would give them perseverance, that you would give them comfort. Lord, I pray that you would use our church, Lord, to continue to reach the nations with the gospel. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So one of the one movie that I um, I don't know if it came out last year, maybe two years ago, was the movie The Martian. I'm not sure if you saw that movie with Matt Damon. Um, the story basically is based off a book. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, it was based off a book um, by Andy Weir uh, and that came out in 2011. I believe my brother read it, which is surprising because my brother doesn't read a lot of books. But he read The Martian. It's a really interesting story. It's not a true story. It's not a story based off history. It's a fictional story about an astronaut named Mark Whitney, Whitney, who um, was basically left because his crew, when they were at Mars, so they were on the planet Mars on a mission, and he, there was a storm, it was like a sandstorm that happened on Mars, and he got hit by a satellite dish during the storm, and they couldn't find him, and so they left him, and then it found they, they, uh, he actually was alive. He didn't die, and they thought he had died, and so they left to go back to Earth, and left him behind. He was deserted on the, the planet Mars. Um, and so it's basically the story of, of his survival. Um, and basically, of, over like using satellites, they found that he was alive. Like they discovered uh, several, I don't, know, I don't know the expand, I don't know if it was a year later, but it was quite a, a long length of time. They, NASA found, that, found out that he was alive. They, they saw him on satellite. They eventually were able to start communicating with him trying to uh, help him, and they were trying, during that same time, while they were communicating with him, they were trying to put a mission together to actually get him back to, because there's no way that he was going to survive forever on the planet Mars. He didn't have food, he didn't have water, uh, and it's an interesting story because he's a botanist, and so he figures out how to grow potatoes on the planet Mars, but he didn't have enough there's some accidents that happened during the story, but he was going to run out of food and he was going to die of, die of, of hunger if they didn't find some way to go get him. So the story is basically about NASA trying to help him and then go and bring him home. And it makes you wonder through that story, how valuable is a human life? Like you think about that, all the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, if not billions, I'm not really sure, money it probably would have taken to be able to send another mission to Mars to save one human being. We think about like the issues in our day and age with abortion and euthanasia, where we kind of have this, this feeling that life is not as precious as it should be, yet you get this story about science trying to find a way to save one human being that's left on Mars. So how much, how, how valuable is a human life? How valuable is it? How much, how much I mean, we see in the story, in the story of the Martian, that a human life is worth a, a lot because you're, they spent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to go and find him and to bring him home. We talk about the 
economic value of a human life. How, how much value is a human life? An economic value is, a, is an economic term or a, a business term that means the maximum amount a customer is willing to pay for an item is its economic value. Now we think about how much a car you're willing to pay for a particular car, or maybe a particular house, or a particular uh, uh, part or an um, item of clothing, um, other things that we're willing to buy. What is the maximum uh, value a customer is willing to pay for a particular item? And we think about what does God gain by saving us? We think about Christ and who he was and the precious blood of Christ. We sang about highly what a savior. Christ's value in comparison to us. How, what does God gain for, for giving his only begotten son, his eternal son, the perfect lamb of God, and offering him as the, as the provision for our sins? Is that equal value? What does God gain from offering his son? Maybe you think that God gains a lot from that. Like somehow God is, is somehow needs us to be saved. There's something empty or, or missing with God because of who we are as sinners. And therefore, he sends Jesus because he needs us. He needs us to be saved. He needs us to be redeemed. He needs the glory because he's, 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 he's less or he's empty or he's, uh, he's needing certain amounts of glory to reach some level of completion or perfection in himself. Therefore, he needs us to be saved. We see in John 1.29 that John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's an interesting title. He doesn't call him Savior. He doesn't call him King. He doesn't call him Messiah. He calls him Lamb. What is John? And he's, he's, he's announcing this to a large group of people, to a crowd of people, um, as John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. That Lamb is, 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 is a very important term in, in, in the history of Israel. The Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb. And in 1 Peter 1.19, Christ is the one who is without blemish, without sin. He is the Lamb who is perfect in every way. That the, the Lamb of God, that Jesus was the Lamb per excellent. He was the perfect and excellent Lamb. And if you know about uh, the history of Israel, that the Lamb in Leviticus 4, that God presented the, the sin offering, the laws of the sin offering. And if you know your Levitical history, and if you read the book of Leviticus, that's usually where people get to in their, uh, their annual reading plan. They get to Leviticus, and that's when it all stops, right? Because Leviticus is a difficult book to read. It's law-based. It's, it's like reading a law document, and that a lot of us aren't trained to be lawyers, so we have a difficulty reading law. But basically it's just different laws that God uh, communicates through Moses to the people of Israel. And he says that in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 4, that they are to present an animal without blemish for the forgiveness of their sins as a provision for their sins, for the forgiveness of their sins. If you, if you have a Bible, go to Leviticus chapter 4. This is an important book to go to in understanding what John means when he says the Lamb of God. So Leviticus chapter 4, just past it. We see starting in verse 4, 
He says, you shall bring the bulls to the doorway of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. The way that it worked was you took one of your perfect animals, like your bull, your, your goat, or your lamb. You're talking about a perfect animal, an animal that produces milk, an animal that produces good meat, something that is in your home for long periods of time. Maybe your kids named it, right? And you had to take that animal, the father had to take the animal, walk to the temple, and before he actually got into the temple, he was responsible, not the priest, he was responsible for killing the animal for the forgiveness of his family's sins. That had been a pretty bloody experience, right? The thought, I mean, if you're deer hunters or something, or you're a fisher and you're used to kind of like um, cutting up an animal and using it for, you know, for, for the meat... But basically, that they were responsible for, for, for killing the animal. We see in verse, verse 15 of Leviticus. Next page here. It says, Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. This is for the sins of the, for the, for the nation, for the whole congregation. If they had had sins, the elder of that congregation or of that group of people had to bring an animal before the Lord, and he had to slay it for the provision of the sins of the people. Leviticus 4.24, it says, this is about the sins of the nation, a leader. It says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat, slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. And the priest says, take some of the blood of the sin offering with his fingers and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. And the rest of his bull he shall pour out on the base of the altar of the burnt offering. Verse 29, then it says that he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. 31. Then he shall remove all the fat just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall offer it up to the smoke on the altar for a smoothing aroma to the Lord. Then the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. All of this was a provision for forgiveness of sins. You bring your own provision to appease the judgment of God the holy God, it's the way the holy people of God are ought to uh, atone for sin because if God is a holy God and he, he, remember he dwelt amongst his people in the tabernacle and he dwelt there and if they sinned or the nation sinned, they had to make provision for their sins and God provided a way for that sin to be atoned for through the provision of a unblemished animal. It sanctified them, right? It, it made them a holy people. It identified them as God's holy people because other nations didn't do it this particular way. They did it this way to atone for their sins. So when John says, behold the Lamb of God, he's saying this is God's provision for the sins of his people. God is literally providing a provision for our sins because we're unable to provide a provision that is that is precious enough or good enough to forgive us of our sins, to redeem us. So God, who is the one who has been sinned against, actually provides a lamb, a provision for our sins. We think of Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham and Isaac, and God told Abraham to, to offer up his son as a burnt offering, a sin offering to God. That God even says that this is the provision uh, that will be made for the forgiveness of their sins. But he tells his son, because Isaac's like, where's the, where's the goat? Where's the bull? How are we to make a burnt offering to God if we have no animal? And what does Abraham said? God will provide for himself the lamb. 
and 13 and 14, God provides a ram. The Lord will provide is the title that Abraham calls the mountain. The Lord will provide. And yet in this, and for our sins, we see through Christ that the provision, the lamb, is Christ himself. That God provides his own son. He doesn't take it away. He doesn't provide a bull because a bull's not good enough, as you read in Hebrews chapter 10. Only the bread of Christ can forgive us of sins, the one and final sacrifice for our sins. So we think about this Lamb of God, God's provision for our sins is through his Son, Christ Jesus. And then in Handel's Messiah, after he, he uses his song on John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, he talks about who this Lamb is in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that is prophesied by Isaiah, Isaiah to, to talk to us about who this Messiah is, that he is not only is he going to be a king, but he's going to be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 1 through 8, says, He who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one for whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we do not esteem him. We do not esteem him. Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him. By his, by his scourging, we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for, and for as as and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. This is the provision that God offers. It's His own Son who is now the suffering servant here. He grew up before Him, before the people. He had no form or majesty. Even though he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, even though he was the eternal son of God, he came in a, in a, in a form that had no majesty, no beauty. In a sense, he, he didn't look like someone who would be a deliverer. He doesn't look like a king. He's not someone that you would see as despising. You wouldn't look at him and say, oh, you're ugly. You would see him and you would then totally ignore him. You would totally not remember his face because there's nothing about him says deliverer. Nothing about him says king. Nothing about him says eternal son. Even though he is all of that, he came on earth and was presented in not that way. His identity was not perceived as one who would be a deliverer, not someone who would shake the world by any, by any means. This is the mighty arms of God. He starts to talk about this in Isaiah 52. Who, what are the arms of God? What are the mighty arms of God? You would, never, you would never think this would be the mighty arms of God. The child in a manger would never be perceived by anyone in the world as the mighty arms of God. But it is the mighty arms of God. This is the form of, his deliver, of our deliverance, a baby born in a manger. 
That is the form of our deliverance. And yet the world says that can't be so. There's no way that can happen. That, we, that, that's not the message that makes any sense. But yet that is the message that is the, the form of our deliverance. That is the mighty arms of God. That is the identity of our deliverer as a baby born in a manger. He was rejected. He was, he was by men. He was despised. He was seen as worthless in the eyes of the world. A man of sorrows. Our form whom men hide from. They fight their faces. People avoid people that they feel uncomfortable with. People that they see as sorrowful. Some people that they see as, as beneath them. They ignore. They, they kind of, they don't, they don't, they avoid them. It's not like they, that Jesus was some hideous form. It's not like he was, he was like Quasimoto and had like humps on his back. He was someone that you just, you avoided. Someone that you didn't remember their face. Someone you just saw as worthless, not important. What can he do for me? It made me think about, you remember in Star Wars in the, in the episode four when Luke Skywalker like saves Princess Leia? Like she's in the, like, the prison in the, Darth, in, the, in the Death Star. And she goes, you look too short to be a stormtrooper. Like, it's this idea like, you can't be the one who comes to save me, right? You're the one who comes, you're, you're short, you look really young. There's no way you're the guy who's come to save me. Jesus is the guy who the world will never say is our deliverer. He can't be the one that God sent to be the deliverer of us or for us. He was born our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He suffered for us. It's not like God, it's not like he suffered uh, by us. It's not like we're the ones that cause God, Christ, to suffer as if our sins somehow just made God, Christ, just suffer, but he was sent for us. He was the provision for our sins. It was the one who was given over for our sins. The lamb wasn't one who just suffered because of the sins. He suffered because he was given as a provision for the sins. He was smitten by God, pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His suffering brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He offered his son as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. God did not uh, didn't, he, he was willing to not even spare his own son for our sins, Romans 8.32. The effects of our behavior on our sins fell on him. The child in the manger, the little one that's in the manger scenes, that one that we see every day during Christmas season, he is the one whose effects of our sins fell upon. He is the one that our iniquity is upon him, that God laid all of our iniquities on him. To be our deliverer. It makes it far more, uh, our, this, the guilt of our sin, when we think of it in those terms, that the baby lying in the manger, the one that Mary gave birth to, right? The, her child that she loved. That, that passage where she had everything in her heart. She loved Jesus. It was her son. To think that her son was the means of our provision of our sins makes it feel far the effects of our behavior fell upon her son, on her child. He was stricken for the transgressions of the people. He voluntarily did this. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He was aware of it. He was submissive to the mission of redemption. It wasn't like the lamb who had no idea what was going on. God 
gave over his son, and Christ voluntarily and fully aware and fully submissive to the Father's will, opened not his mouth and was oppressed and was afflicted for our sins. He was the lamb led to the slaughter. But, thankfully, the story doesn't end there. In Psalm 16, we see that the Lord didn't leave his son, to the, he didn't abandon his son to Hades. Uh, Peter uses this passage in Acts 2, 24-29 to talk about the resurrection of the dead, that Christ Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, he was the suffering servant. Yes, he was afflicted for our sins. But God didn't leave his Holy One to see corruption. He didn't abandon his son to death. His son is the righteous one. He is at the right hand. His, he, he, is, he is glad. He is always, the Lord is always before him. He trusts in the Lord. And God does not abandon him. He is God's beloved son. He did not abandon him in any way, but raised him from the dead. He did not abandon us, but provides us a way uh, for us to uh, have re- resurrection and have redemption. If we trust in the Lord, he shall vindicate us and he shall restore us. But while Christ is the suffering servant, but he is also God's beloved son. And God did not abandon his soul to Hades, but raised him from the dead so that there's victory. If Christ, all he did was die on the cross, and that was the end of the story, you cannot call him a glorious king, right? You can never say, hallelujah, what a savior, what a glorious king, if actually, really, the glorious king is still dead. What victory does he have? What conquest does he have? What triumph does he have if he died at the hands of the Roman Empire? And that's all that ended up happening. He's also the glorious king. Christ raised him from the dead. He's the beloved son of, Christ, of God. He was raised from the dead, and he is the glorious king who triumphs over death and sin. Psalms 24 it helps us with this, that Christ, not only being the suffering servant, is also the returning glorious king. Psalms 24. The earth of the Lord is in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift it up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. The king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Christ is the king of glory. Who can come into the, 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 into the who can ascend to the hill of God? Christ Jesus, the glorious king. Who can come into the gates of God? Christ Jesus, the glorious King. Who can go up the mountain of Yahweh? Not us. We, far, we don't qualify. We're not the Lord's strong. We're not the Lord's mighty. We're not mighty in battle. We're not kings of glory. Christ is the King of glory. He is the Lord Almighty. And through Him, and trusting in Him, do we have access to God. Through Him do we have access to the hill of Yahweh, enter into his city, enter into his gates, only because we are with the king, the glorious king. 
I mean, even it says that the, the angels worshipped Christ. In Revelation 5, 11 through 12, it said, Worthy is the Lamb. They worshipped him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is holy. Christ Jesus, the glorious King, is holy and deserves all worship. There's a, there's a scene in, in Lord of the Rings. It's not in the movie. It's in the book. And when Aragon, the character Aragon, remember, he is this, this character throughout the entire story. He's fighting battles, but he's kind of obscure. Like, no one thinks of him as a king, right? No one thinks of him as the, the promised king of Gondor. No, no one said Aragon is the king, right? He's this... This, this ranger, he's a guy who like walks in the woods and there's nothing extremely significant about him. But he is the true king. And when he comes back to the, the city of Gondor, they, the first time as king, the city steward proclaims Aragon, uh, Aragon's royal pedigree for all the citizens to hear. He says, here is Aragon, chieftain, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged. Victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing. He shall be king and enter into the city and dwell there. That's what they announce when he comes into the city. That's Christ Jesus, man. He's the glorious king who comes into the city of God and says, why, is he, why, why should we let him in? Well, he's the worthy lamb. He laid his life down on the cross. He, has been, he is victorious over sin and death. He is the king and the glorious king, and he deserves entrance into the city of God. And if we follow him, we get to go inside the city. Not because we qualify in and of ourselves. We've done nothing to be qualified to enter into the city of God. But because we trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we shall enter the city of God. Only through Christ do we have that authority. The Lord announces to the world that Christ is victorious. He has slain the dragon. He has rescued God's people from slavery. Good news has spread how beautiful the feet of, the, of those who carry the good news, right? Romans chapter 10. The words to the end of the world, the spread of that Christ Jesus is the glorious king and he is saved and he brings a, a message of redemption. The point number three is the kings of nations rage. So all this happens. The glorious king, Christ Jesus is the glorious king. But Psalms, Psalms chapter 2 says the kings of the nations, they rage. Psalms chapter 2, the nations, they rage. Why the nations in uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed, saying, Let us tear the fetters apart and cast them away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The kings of the nations, they don't like Christ Jesus as king. They want to throw off this oppression. They want to throw off this yoke. They want to do their own thing. They rage. They hate God. They hate his authority. They hate his law. They hate everything about him. What does God say? He says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nation as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earth, earthenware. O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Do homage to the sun, he says. Because he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the glorious king. He deserves all the realms. And you shouldn't rage against him. They rebuke. God rebukes them in, their, in his anger. He, he's, he terrifies them in his wrath. There is no true freedom. 
when you try to refuse the, 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 the power of God or refuse his law, refuse his authority, refuse his rule. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11? He says, come unto me and take on my yoke, which is, which is easy and light. Don't take on your own yoke. Don't take on this, 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 this yoke of rebellion. You will, there's no true freedom there. True freedom is in my yoke. Don't try to burn off. Don't try to bust the, the, the strings. Don't try to tear off the ropes. Don't try to rage. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun where, they, where there's, there's rest and salvation. Celebrate his rule. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Celebrate his rule. We think about all the basins of the world and why we do international missions. We, we're not happy that they pay homage to the gods that don't exist. We're not happy that they pay homage to those who aren't true rulers of the world, the rulers of the universe, and who, who pay homage to these inglorious kings. So we share the gospel so they would pay homage, so they would worship God as the glorious king, the one true king above all. Hence, when the, the, end of, of, the end of part two of Handel's Messiah, you get that great song, Hallelujah. We all heard that song, uh, and I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing that high. But Hallelujah, that song makes you just... It, it, it brings emotion to your eyes because it's, this is the end of the story. Hallelujah. The Lord God is impotent. He is all-powerful. He reigns. He reigns over everyone and everything. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise him because he is ruler. He is king. He is the glorious king. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Give him honor because he was a suffering servant. He died. He was, he was punished for your iniquities. And then he was risen from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the glorious king above all. The child in the manger who becomes a suffering servant who died is also the glorious king. Pay homage to him. Give him honor. Give him praise. God provided him as a provision for your sins. He presented Christ Jesus, the precious blood of Christ, which is far more valuable than anything else. He provided that as the provision for your sin, but then he rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the He's the glorious king above all things. His glory is above all things. And so I want to end with this because we are people who do not have kings, right? We don't have a queen. Um, we're not British. Um, we're, not, uh, we're not some other nation that's that is used to this idea of a king. So we hear passages like Psalms 2. It talks about king has been placed on Zion, the glorious king. We might, when I kind of go, yeah, like I get kings from like Lord of the Rings, but we don't have a king. And I, it, we kind of miss the point, I think. Because we're Americans, right? This is what de Tocqueville says about America and democracy of America. He says, the people reign in America. As a, de as a deity does in the universe. They are the cause and the aim of all things. Everything comes from them, and everything is absorbed in them. This, the people, is a sovereign power that, that is of the people. In America, the people appoint the legislative and the executive power and furnish the jurors who punish all infractions of the laws. The people are therefore the real directing power. The people are the kings in America. So all of you... You may not know this, you may not feel this, but in America, you are kings and queens. So the people in Psalms 2 who rage against God's king is us. We're the ones that rage against the king. We have our own kingdoms, right? We have our little kingdoms 
We have our little minions and our children, and they're all part of our kingdom, and we have our courts and our home and our castles, and we, we kind of rule in our little home. We vote, and we do this, and we do that. We don't feel like anyone's above us, do we? We don't feel like there's some king or queen above us that tells us what to do. We kind of rule our little kingdoms. We're the ones that rage against Christ's authority. We're the one that rages against God's authority. We want to throw off that oppression. We want to throw off that law. And we need to quickly come to that realization that we are not kings of our universe. We are not kings of our kingdom. God is the king of our kingdom. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the glorious king. He deserves that authority. We refuse to be controlled. We hate anything that overthrows our power. Yet God presents his lamb, his beloved son, as the provision for our sin. Christ was a suffering servant for our sake. God raised him from the dead. The glorious king won. All the nations are his inheritance. Celebrate his rule. If you don't celebrate his rule and his reign, you will be broken. The rod of iron, as Psalms 2 says, he will overcome you in judgment because you did not give him honor that he deserves. You give him praise that he deserves. Again, going back to what I said in the beginning, what does God gain from all this? What does he gain from giving his son over for us? Nothing. He doesn't gain anything. God is, doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything. He is the I am, right? He is perfect in power. He's perfect in knowledge. He's complete in his glory. He's everything from the beginning. He didn't somehow miss something and need us. He needs nothing. He gains nothing from us. He does it all to show you his love. He loves you so much. His he, he, he loves you so much, he spared not his own son. The maximum offer for your sins was the precious blood of his beloved son. He became a child laying in the manger, became a curse, sentenced to death on the tree to make you a child of God, to give you access to God's holy mountain, to give you a family, to cleanse you from all the mistakes of your past, to restore you from your brokenness. To, you, he valued you highly. You're highly valued by God. Therefore, worship the child as Savior and Lord. When you think about the child in the manger, he's not just a child. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the King of kings. He's the glorious King. And that was what God provided for your sins. That's what he provided for your brokenness. That's what he provided for your mistakes. He values you quite highly. You, you get it out of your head that God gains something from your redemption. He gains nothing, but he saved you anyways. That is the mystery of it all. That is a great story that God loved you but gained nothing. When we think of love, what do you offer me? What do I get from you out of my love? God gains nothing. But yet he, said, he presented his son for you anyways. Worship the child as Savior and Lord. I want to read this in conclusion. This is a song from Sojourn Community Church called The Warrior. It says, earth and sea will give up their dead. The nations gather before him. A day of glory, a day of dread. No one dares not ignore him now. You can't ignore him anymore. He may be the suffering servant that people overlooked in the past. You can't ignore him anymore. Oh, the warrior will conquer all. The world will fall before his feet. The world will conquer. The warrior will conquer all. The world will fall before his feet, before his feet. He is the warrior. He is the great king. You can't ignore him. He came to conquer all. He came to bring salvation, bring, give him homage, give him worship, celebrate his reign. Let's pray.